Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He played just four years in the NFL, three for the Minnesota Vikings, and he is the only quarterback in Vikings history to win an NFL championship and was the first quarterback to lead his team to 12 straight wins in one season. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at one of the forgotten yet greatest to ever suit up a quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, Joe Cass. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome yet again to another edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. As always, so glad you've decided to join me as we continue the journey back in time to take a look at those who have shaped the games we love to play and we love to watch. And this week, we're going to take a look back at the career of a very unique individual, quarterback Joe Cap. His road to the NFL was not an easy one. In fact, it took quite a while for Cap to suit up in an NFL uniform. A star for Cal Berkeley, Cap was drafted by the Washington Redskins, but never suited up for the team. Instead, Cap headed north to the Canadian Football League, where he enjoyed a lot of success. But his thirst to play against the best football players in the world grew too strong. And in 1967, after having spent seven years north of the border, Cap finally made it to the big show, the National Football League. Unfortunately, though, his time in the NFL was too short-lived. Just three years with the Vikings and one year with the Boston Patriots before it all ended. But those three years in Minnesota were quite a ride. And joining me in just a second will be Edward Groover, a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association. Ed has also written about one of his favorite players ever, Joe Cap, the Boston Patriots, and has a new book coming out next spring about the great rivalry between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Oakland Raiders. The book is called Hell with the Lid Off, Inside the Steelers-Raiders Rivalry That Changed Pro Football. Before we get into today's show, as always, just a few reminders. Please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, look for our page on Facebook, or check out SportsFH.com where you can read more about our guests Check out stats and stories about the heroes we talk about, our schedule for upcoming podcasts, send us comments, we'd love to hear from you, suggest topics, and so much more. Also, if you can, please check us out on iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And of course, 
thanks to our sponsor, Audible. Yeah, I know. I tell you about Audible every podcast. Well, that's because it's really a good thing. Give it a try. There's no risk. You get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook download that you get to keep. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh and pick a book. It's as easy as that. Okay, now back to Joe Cap, the only quarterback to ever lead the Minnesota Vikings to an NFL championship. And let's not forget the fact that he won a great cup with the British Columbia Lions as well. And here to talk about Joe is Ed Groove. Ed, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I'm so glad you could uh, come on today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, good to talk to you. Awesome. So let's start here. Where did or does your fandom or interest for Joe Cap come from? Um, basically, uh, I was growing up in the era that Joe Cap uh, became, you know, a household name for a lot of NFL fans. Uh, I was nine years old when Joe led the Vikings to the NFL Championship and Super Bowl Four. And even though I wasn't a Vikings fan at that time, uh, like a lot of other people uh, who watched the Vikings on TV, you know, I, I was interested in this guy who wasn't really a classic quarterback in the sense of a lot of his contemporaries, like, you know, Bart Starr and John Unitas and Joe Namath. He wasn't, you know, a typical pocket passer. He was a guy who liked to roll out a lot. He would uh, run a lot. Uh, he'd break containment. And, um, you know, even though he wasn't, uh, you know, a, a model kind of quarterback like his, like some of the other stars, mm -hmm. uh, he got the job done and, uh, you know, was a charismatic leader. Uh, I think most people will acknowledge that he was a leader of those, those Viking teams, even though their defense was, was, uh, grabbing a lot of headlines of sure. people leaders, but Joe cap was, uh, you know, he was a leader of, the, of a very colorful Viking team. You know, the Vikings have had some, well, some pretty terrific quarterbacks throughout their history, including Fran Tarkenton. For a mm -hmm. little while, they had Warren Moon, even Dante Culpepper, Brad Johnson. Where mm -hmm. would you rank Joe Cap? You personally, where would you rank Joe Cap in the history of the Minnesota Vikings as far as quarterbacks are concerned? Well, he's you know he was only there for three seasons, sixty-seven, sixty-eight, and sixty-nine. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's still the only one that's ever led them to their lone NFL championship. Now, of course, in 69, there was an NFL championship and an AFL championship. Right. And, you know, the Vikings did win uh, the, the NFL championship. They lost Super Bowl four to Kansas City, but they still are recognized as, you know, an NFL championship team, even though they didn't win the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. So he's still the only quarterback, Minnesota quarterback, who has that distinction. Hmm. Um, you know, and I, th I think that, for people who grew up in that area or, or that grew up in that time and watched him, um, you know, he was, he was something different. Like I said, he was, he had a lot of charisma. He was colorful. Um, you know, he spoke his mind and, um, you know, he was a winner. He was a winner. And a lot of these other guys were too, you know, Randall Cunningham had the great season in 98. And I think Joe, you know, in his own way, he doesn't have the statistics, a lot of those other quarterbacks, but he certainly ranks, um, as one of the more memorable uh, Viking players in that team's history. Okay, so now, before we go any farther, you've written about Cap for 
the Professional Football Researchers Association, and recently you wrote about the Boston Patriots as well, not to mention you have a book coming out about the great rivalry between the Steelers and the Raiders. We'll get to that in just a little bit, but tell me a little bit about the PFRA. What is its mission, and why should listeners of Sports Forgotten Heroes become more aware of the PFRA and maybe even join? Uh, the Pro Football Researchers Association, I've been a member of that since uh, the early 1990s. Um, Bob Carroll, the late Bob Carroll, was you know, a big part of that. Um, he may have even have founded it. I'm not quite certain on that. But it's for a lot of people who, you know, a lot of football historians, uh, pro football historians, uh, people who like uh, the history of the NFL, the AFL, you know, the All-America Football Conference. Um, you know, it's all included in there and, you know, it basically traces the history of the game and, uh, you know, you can find out how the, the modern NFL has come about by, you know, researching its history and reading about it. And, you know, there are a lot of stories about the colorful characters, not only the Hall of Famers, but a lot of players, coaches, owners who were kind of under the radar, you know, and you might not know about otherwise, but, you know, a lot of people, it's a lot of great writing, um, you know, a lot of great history in there. And it's just uh, an organization that, you know, really does promote the history of pro football. Cool. I joined last year. I love it. And when my membership is up, I'll rejoin as well. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, yeah, let's get back to Cat. His journey to the NFL was not easy. He played his college ball at Cal Berkeley, was Mm -hmm. drafted in the 18th round of the 1959 NFL draft by the Washington Redskins, but he wound up in the Canadian Football League. So let's start with, if you can, can you tell me anything about his college career? Well, I know he led uh, Cal to the Rose Bowl. Um, They did lose that game, but he's still the only quarterback in uh, NFL history to to take a team to the Rose Bowl, uh, the Grey Cup, which is the CFL championship, and the Super Bowl. So he has that distinction, and that's probably not ever going to be matched. I can't imagine it it would be. Um, but uh, you know, I know that when he was drafted uh, by the NFL, he was given some advice by Bobby Lane, the uh, Detroit Lions quarterback who was kind of like a forerunner to cap and that he was kind of unorthodox in his playing manner and his style, but he was, you know, a great leader and a great winner. And, uh, you know, Joe didn't get the contract offer that he was hoping for as far as the dollar amount goes. And Bobby Lane told him, you know, follow the money. Hmm. And Joe took that advice to heart and went to the CFL where they were willing to pay uh, a little bit more than the NFL was at that time. And, you know, he went there and, and uh, you know, made his bones, so to speak, as a pro football player with the CFL, uh, led uh, led his team to the C- CFL championship. And actually, it was his play in the Canadian Football League that uh, prompted the Vikings, uh, you know, their, their general manager, uh, Jim Finks, and... Uh, the head coach of Bud Grant, both of them whom knew and competed against Joe when he was in the CFL, that prompted them to, you know, bring him into Minnesota in 1967. 
So he gets drafted by the Redskins. Here's what I don't get. The Skins had quarterbacks at that time. They were Eddie LeBaron and Ralph Guglielmi. This is before the days of Norm Snead and Sonny Jurgensen. They draft Cap, and as I understand it, they never even made contact with him afterwards. They never invited him to camp. Didn't do anything. Why? What happened? I think it was the money issue. You know, he he didn't get the contract uh, that he was hoping for. They, they he didn't get the the upfront money that he was hoping for, and that's why he, you know, as I said, took the advice of Bobby Lane and followed the money and went to the Canadian Football League. And so, as you had mentioned, the great Jim Finks knew who he was, and Mm -hmm. Finks was the general manager of the Calgary Stampeders of the CFL. So he Mm -hmm. makes a play for Cap. Cap accepts, and it wasn't long before Cap made his mark. In his rookie season, Calgary went 8-8. and In 1960, he led them to the playoffs, and in 1961, A new team, the British Columbia Lions, or the BC Lions, traded for him, and that paid off greatly as he led the Lions, as you said, to the Grey Cup Championship in 1964. Mm -hmm. What could you tell us about his time in the CFL? How good was he? What were his strengths and weaknesses? How did he refine his game so it would be a better game when he did get to the NFL. What kind of quarterback was he becoming? Wow, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> that's okay. You know, I've been fortunate to, uh, and they might be on YouTube, I'm not sure, but I have been fortunate enough to track down a couple of game films of Joe Cap playing in the CFL uh, in those championship games. And you can see uh, kind of the genesis of what he would become with the Vikings. He was a guy who was you know, on the field, I mean, the, you know, the CFL has different rules than the NFL. It, it kind of, um, you know, prompts a more wide open game because mm-hmm. of the size of the field and so forth. And, you know, you only have three downs to get a first down rather than four. And, you know, a lot of that, I think, kind of shaped Joe's approach to the game in that, you know, he was willing to take risks. He was a gambler. He wanted to go for it all the time. Uh, he didn't like to play conservatively. Mm-hmm. He, he wanted to. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, push the limits of the offense, so to speak. And, uh, you know, the other thing was that the CFL was a rugged league. You know, you had a lot of guys who were trying to, you know, make a name for themselves and make it to the NFL. So it was kind of a a rough and tumble league. And Joe, again, that kind of shaped his approach to the game because he fit right in with that. He was a rough and tumble kind of quarterback who, like I said, would break containment. He would you know, rather than run out of bounds, he would turn up field and, you know, run into a defender, try to run them over. Uh, he would hurdle them. He would, uh, you know, he didn't mind dropping back and throwing, you know, 50 yards downfield on the first down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so he had that aggressive approach that the CFL really kind of welcomed. You know, it played well in that league. And when he went to the Vikings, you know, he brought a lot of that game, most of that game of his to Minnesota. And it played well there too, although he did chafe under the you know somewhat conservative Bud Grant. But uh, you know when he was always asking Grant, you know, let's let's loosen up the reins, you know, let's take it to the defense. And you know Bud relented enough, you know, that Joe was able to win a 
Central Division title in just his second year in Minnesota. And then a year later, you know, wins the NFL championship, playing the kind of ball that he had played in the CFL. Do you know any of his contemporaries from the CFL that he was playing against or even was he a different type of quarterback that the CFL had ever seen? Is there anything else you could tell me about his time in the CFL? Well, I know he had a running feud with a gentleman and his name escapes me right now, but it was only a few years ago that they met again and actually had a, uh, you know, kind of a brawl on stage, even though they're at advanced age in their lives, that that uh, feud was such that it never really died down. Wow. And they actually swapped punches, you know, at the age, ripe old age of 70, you know, 70 plus years. And oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, I know he had that. I know he had that feud with with his former opponent from the CFL. Now, like I said, that that festered for decades. At this point, as as he's playing in the CFL and he's becoming better and he's winning a Grey Cup championship, do you know if the Redskins were regretting their decision at all to not bringing him somehow to Washington? Again, I'm 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 having difficulty understanding why they would draft him and not bring him in. Even though Bobby Lane told him to chase the money, mm-hmm. why didn't Washington still bring him in to see what he what he had or what he could be, and then maybe reevaluate their decision on what to pay him? Well, I'm trying to remember the year that Washington brought in Sonny Jurgensen because I know Jurgensen was with the Eagles through '61, maybe '62. I'm trying to recall now, but. Um, I think Jurgensen came in around 63 or 64 okay. because Norm Sneed was there before right, right. before Jurgensen. And that's, you know, the rival of Jurgensen is probably why they wouldn't bring in Joe Cap. You know, I mean, a lot of people consider Sonny Jurgensen the best, you know, pure passer of that era. You know, even better than guys like Starr and United. It's just as far as being, you know, a pure passer goes. I know when Vince Lombardi got to Washington in 69 to take over as head coach, he said that, you know, nobody threw the ball better than Sonny Jurgensen. And hmm. he had just coached Bart Starr, you know, at the five NFL championships in a decade. So, and had coached against John Unitas and uh, everyone else. So, um, you know, Jurgensen had, uh, you know, he had a, a great arm. He was a, a very good quarterback. You know, I think he's kind of underrated because he never, was with a team that was good enough to win a championship mm-hmm. uh, apart from maybe like the 61 Eagles, you know, they contended, but they didn't get to the championship game. The giants beat them out. But, you know, I think that, uh, I think the fact that the Redskins had Jurgensen, and I think the other thing too, is that the NFL at that time, the mid sixties, you know, they looked down on opposing leagues. You know, they didn't have much regard for the American football league and they had probably even less regard for the Canadian football league. Mm-hmm. All right, so Washington lets him get away. He goes up to the CFL. His rookie year is 1960, as we said. He plays with Calgary. He goes 8-8. Eight and eight. And he plays in the CFL through the 1966 season. By 1967, he wants to go get back home. He wants to play in the States. Mm-hmm. There were a few teams that showed interest in him, and they were all from the AFL, the Raiders, the Chargers, mm-hmm. and the Houston Oilers, who 
are now the Tennessee Titans. There was, from what I can find out, just one NFL team that was showing interest in them and a lot of a lot of interest, and that was the Vikings. And mm-hmm. as you said, they had two really important men on their staff at the time who were really familiar with Joe Cap. That's Jim Finks and the legendary Bud Grant, who had previously right. coached in the CFL, I think, with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Mm-hmm. Minnesota had just traded Fran Tarkenton to the New York Giants, and they needed a quarterback. And this was, I think, one of the very rare instances where there was a trade, and I didn't know you could do I don't know if you could do this now. I didn't know you could do this previously. And there was a trade between the BC Lions and the Minnesota Vikings. Can you talk at all about that? Um, there, yeah, there was, uh, it was kind of a complicated trade from what I recall. And I think the big thing, two big things about that trade were, like you said, the Vikings desperately needed a quarterback. And, you know, Finks had great regard for Joe Cap from the CFL days. And Bud Grant, I know, has made the comment more than once that, um, you know, he had competed against Joe and as a coach, you know, and, uh, you know, he recalled that Joe always had great success against his teams. And that really stuck with with Bud Grant. And, you know, it was one of the big reasons why he wanted to bring him into Minnesota, even though we have to remember that at that point, Joe Cap was about 29 years old. So he was going to be like a 29-year-old rookie in, in a national football league. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I recall, too, is that, you know, the NFL at that point in 67, they had signed the merger agreement with the AFL and it actually played the first Super Bowl in January of 67. But they still had very little regard for the American Football League. Certainly didn't consider them an equal and, you know, took great relish in beating them, be it on the field or off the field. And, you know, I think they that trade was engineered in part to keep Joe Cap out of the AFL, hmm. you know, to bring him to the NFL and to deny the AFL, you know, another good player. Because, again, at that time, there was the, you know, they had just finished uh, – the the pre-merger wars between the leagues, the draft wars that they were infamous for with the babysitting campaigns. And also the, uh, you know, when Al Davis became commissioner of the AFL in 1966, he set out to try to uh, sign away a lot of the NFL's top stars, you know, particularly with emphasis on quarterbacks. He, he targeted Roman Gabriel mm-hmm. and some, you know, a few other quarterbacks and also tried to get Paul Horning away from Green Bay. Wow. So, yeah, so there was this uh, this feud that, you know, even though the uh, kind of a peace uh, peace agreement had been signed between the two leagues, you know, there was still a lot of bitterness between the NFL and AFL, you know, both sides going back and forth. And, I again, I think that the trade was that the NFL, you know, really wanted to kind of stick it to the AFL again and to keep Joe Cap out of the American Football League. All right, let's talk about that trade for a moment. It's the rarest of trades, a trade between two different leagues. It would be like two corporations making a trade, something like Coke trading a CEO to Pepsi. (laughs) It just doesn't happen, yet it did. From what I've been able to come up with, here's how it went down. First of all, several teams needed to get on board. So, from the CFL, 
the British Columbia Lions found a partner in the Toronto Argonauts. Meanwhile, the Vikings needed an NFL partner as well, and they found one in the expansion New Orleans Saints. Now, follow closely. The Lions traded their star defensive lineman Dick Fouts and future CFL Hall of Fame running back Bill Simons to the Argonauts for the rights to another future CFL Hall of Famer, wide receiver Jim Young. Now, the rights here are important, and we'll get to those in just a moment. The Lions then figured out a way to get capped through waivers without any other team in the CFL making a claim on him. Next, the Vikings. Not sure what happened here, but Jim Young, who was born in Canada, Hamilton to be exact, was coveted by the Saints. Vikings GM Jim Finks had to do some fancy footwork here to convince the Saints not to grab Young, whom he was about to waive. Unfortunately, I just can't find any information on what the Vikings and the Saints agreed upon. But New Orleans did not claim Young, and he was free to go to the team in the CFL which owned his rights, the Lions, which had just acquired his rights in the trade with the Argonauts. Cap, who had been waived out of the CFL, was now free to sign anywhere, and he chose the Vikings, Jim Finks, and Bud Grant. Again, I'm not sure how the Saints benefited from all of this, but I'm sure they got something somewhere. This was a lot of work to get players waived so they could go to the teams that wanted them the most. Now, a few more sidebars. Jim Young, who saw spare time playing for the Vikings in 65 and 66, went on to star for the BC Lions from 67 through the 1979 season. He played in 197 games for the Lions and set the following records while he was there. Most receptions with 552, most receiving yards with 9,248, 65 receiving touchdowns, his jersey number 30 was retired by BC, he was also named the CFL's most outstanding Canadian in 1970 and 1972, and in 1991 he was inducted into the Canadian Football League's Hall of Fame. Bill Simons was a terrific acquisition for the Lions as well. Overall, he rushed for exactly 4,300 yards, including 1,107 in 1968 when he also scored nine touchdowns, caught 44 passes for 536 yards and two touchdowns, and was named the CFL's most outstanding player. Ultimately, he was inducted into the CFL's Hall of Fame in 1997. As for Dick Fouts, who was born in Omaha and played college ball at Missouri, he was a five-time All-Star in the CFL and was also named the league's top lineman in 1965, although some controversy over that led to Wayne Harris of Calgary also staking claim to that award. And of course, there was Joe Cap. His Canadian numbers were outstanding, throwing for 22,725 yards, 
139 touchdowns, 130 interceptions, and on the ground, he rushed for 2,784 yards and scored 26 touchdowns. Of course, he also led the BC Lions to a Grey Cup championship in 1964. So he makes it to the Vikings. And that first year was a little unusual. And as we're recording this podcast, this is uh, just after the second full week of the 2018 NFL season. And we've had something a little unusual this year, a tie in each of the Mm -hmm. first two weeks of the season. You had the Steelers and Browns tied, and then you had the Packers and, of all teams, the Vikings tie. Mm Mm-hmm. So Cap, in his first year with the Vikings, leads Minnesota to a record of three wins, five losses, and three ties. <laughs> and, well, that's what he was as the starting quarterback. And mm-hmm. when he wasn't on the field, the Vikings didn't win. They were winless. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us, if anything, about his first year in the NFL, how difficult it was for him adju- to adjust or how easy it was for him to adjust, and just his overall play that first year in the National Football League. Well, I know that one of his first games uh, was against the Los Angeles Rams. And at that time, they were they had the famous Fierce Enforcement. I think it was a preseason game, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, and uh, according to Mick Tinglehoff, who was the Vikings center um, in 67, uh, when Joe Cap approached the line of scrimmage on his first series against the fearsome foursome, he looked across the line at Deacon Jones and Marilyn Olson and uh, Lamar Lundy and Roger Brown and said, okay, let's see how tough you SOBs are. <laughs> so that was kind of his, his introduction to the NFL. And I think the Rams kind of showed him how tough they were that day, if I recall correctly, because they, they kind of handed the Vikings their helmets, but, um, you know, Joe, uh, Joe wasn't, uh, say, fearful of playing in the NFL. He had great confidence in himself, and, you know, his teammates saw that. And, uh, you know, he set a tone early on. There's a famous story about how the Vikings lost a close game to, you know, the eventual Super Bowl champion Green Bay Packers that year where, uh, you know, the offense, Joe Cap claimed, the, you know, the Viking offense lost the game, but. Lonnie Warwick, who was a linebacker for the Vikings, claimed that the Minnesota defense had lost the game against Green Bay. And this went on back and forth that the, uh, that when the team was having a few drinks after the game, went back and forth throughout the evening. And finally, Captain Warwick thought, well, let's just go outside and settle this argument. So they went outside <laughs> and uh, they stood on either side of a fence uh, that was about chest high. And, uh, you know, so they couldn't do too much damage to one another, but <laughs> they stood there and swapped punches for a while uh, just to try to impress upon the other guy who was actually right. And, uh, you know, the next day, Joe woke up with a pretty good black eye and Warwick had some bruises. And they said, well, you know, we should probably go tell Coach Grant about this before he finds out on his own. So they went and told him. And, you know, but that after that, it was it was. You know, they shook hands. It was forgotten. And, uh, you know, that kind of helped bring them together as a team. You know, it really solidified team. And even though, like you said, they didn't have a successful season in 67, 
in Joe's first year with the club in 68, they won the central division title and, you know, advanced to the playoffs and, and lost to the eventual NFL champion, Baltimore Colts. Right. His second year, the Vikings went eight and six, but it was mm-hmm. his third year, which incredibly was his final year in Minnesota. He went 12 and one and led the Vikings to the Super Bowl against the Kansas City Chiefs, mm-hmm. a game that Minnesota ultimately lost, I think it was 23-7. to Right. It was a fantastic year for him. He mm-hmm. threw 19 touchdown passes, seven in one game. Can you tell us a little more about that season and maybe something about that game in which he threw seven touchdown passes? Yeah. Well, an interesting thing is that Joe did not start the season, despite his success in 68, leading the club to its first uh, division championship. He did not start the 69 season as the starting quarterback. Who was that then? It was Gary Quazzo. Why? Joe was on, Joe was on the bench. I guess just the quarterback battle that they went back and forth, and Bud Grant decided for the season opener in Yankee Stadium against the Giants that he would go with Quazzo. And Joe was on the sideline for the entire game, and the Vikings lost. Wow. They lost, they, yeah, they lost by a point, and it turned out to be their uh, their only loss through the next. Uh, and then Joe took over the following week against the Colts and led them to 12 straight victories, which tied an NFL record at that time. But, uh, yeah, he, they, you know, they, their first home game that season was is at Met Stadium against the, the reigning NFL champion Colts, a team that had – that kind of beat up Joe and the Vikings in the in a mud bowl in uh, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore the previous December, and because the Colts had used a lot of blitzes that the Vikings weren't ready for, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Joe spent the summer watching the the, the uh, film of that game and was ready for Baltimore and and Bud Grant knew it and he inserted Joe back into the role as a starting quarterback, and Cap had a tremendous day, seven touchdown passes because he was ready for the, the Colt blitzes and the, uh, what the Colts were going to do on defense that day, and he picked them apart. Wow. An interesting side note to that game is that one of the game's officials, uh, Adrian Burke, uh, had himself thrown seven touchdown passes in an NFL game years earlier. So he was on the same field with Joe when Joe tied his record. Oh, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think seven touchdown passes in one game is still the record. Yeah, and Peyton Manning tied it a couple of years ago. Right, and, and yeah. Pat Mahomes made a pretty good try at it this yeah. past weekend. <laughs> <laughs> he almost got there. He finished with six, but yeah, he almost made it. You wrote, unlike his contemporaries, Bart Starr and John Unitas, Cap was not a classic quarterback, and you sort of alluded to this earlier. While Starr and Unitas would take their patented five-step drops, survey the field, then whistle a pass through the defense, Cap would stagger back seven steps, do a slogging, half roll left or right, then float a pass that had more wobble than whistle. Talk about his style. Give us a little more about his style. Yeah, and you know Joe would be the first to tell you that. He, uh, he said he, he, he played quarterback you know, rolling out left or right, and he said he he looked like Dagwood Bumstead who was running out to catch a bus in the morning. You know, he was kind of unorthodox, kind of, you know, he didn't have great moves. He didn't have great speed. He, he said he would try to shake and bake a defender and show him all his moves. And he said that was like all two of them. 
you know, so he didn't have uh, he didn't have a lot of he certainly wasn't like a Randall Cunningham or a Fran Tarkenton in the open field, but he was a big guy for that era. You know, he was six two, six three, two hundred and fifteen, two hundred twenty pounds. That's a pretty good size for a quarterback mm-hmm. in an era when a lot of you know Star, United, Namath, Dawson, they were all in the hundred ninety pound range, mm-hmm. one hundred ninety five. So he was he was big for that era. Uh, he and Gabriel were probably the two biggest quarterbacks. But um, yeah, he didn't. His balls. Uh, somebody said they looked like they they had helium helium in them the way he <laughs> tossed them up there. And he uh, he was one of the few quarterbacks who didn't grip the ball in the orthodox manner. He didn't grip it with the laces. Hmm. Yeah, he didn't use the laces when he threw, which is interesting. But um, you know, but. If you look at his his passes, they wobbled, uh, you know for sure. But they usually reached their their intended target. Yeah, I was going to ask you, was he accurate? Yeah, yeah, he was he was accurate, and not as accurate as as some others, but uh, you know, accurate enough to win twelve straight games and and an NFL championship. And you know, a lot of it was with his passing because the Vikings did not have what. You know, anyone would consider a great running game. They had good running backs, Bill mm-hmm. Brown and Dave Osborne, but they were kind of like between the tackle kind of guys, you know, tough, rugged running backs who would, you know, turn out, you know, maybe 70 to 80 yards a game a piece, maybe, but they weren't like breakaway backs. They didn't have like a real game breaker in the backfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had uh, Clint Jones from. Michigan State, he was probably the closest thing they had to a breakaway, but he wasn't a starter. He was, you know, he would come in to spell either Brown or Osborne. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was, you know, was Joe Cat moving the offense. And, you know, a lot of it was supplied by the defense. They gave the Vikings a lot of short fields to work with, and they scored some points on their own, too. They had an outstanding front four with Eller, Page, Larson, and Marshall. You know, uh, Eller and Page are in the Hall of Fame. Marshall should be. I don't know why he. Mm-hmm. He is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an injustice to him. He should definitely be there. So you have three, three of the four starters are Hall of Fame caliber. And, uh, you know, it's one of the better defenses of their era. And in 69, uh, I believe they set an NFL record for that time for fewest points allowed in a season, mm-hmm. like 133, I, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And didn't Carl Eller pay him the utmost respect after that loss to Kansas City? I, th- I actually think he paid him that respect following the victory over Cleveland oh, in the NFL championship game, when he said to Joe, you know, Joe, you're my brother. And, you know, at a time when, you know, the United States uh, was had a lot of racial tension, you know, kind of like in this era as well. But, you know, a lot of the, the riots and everything that were going on around the country at that time, you know, for a, a black man like Carl Eller and a white, white man like, you know, Joe Cap. Uh, mixed origin to, you know, to have that kind of brotherhood, uh, you know, I think really said a lot about, you know, Cap said a lot about Eller and said a lot about that Viking team, how they were able to, you know, come together as a unit. And again, a lot of that goes back to Joe Cap. Mm-hmm. You know, from what I understand, prior to his arrival, the Vikings were kind of a fragmented team. You know, you had one group of guys, they're kind of cliquish. One group of guys would go to one party, another group would go to a different party. And you know, when Joe got there, he was invited to all the parties. So he said, hmm. you know, why don't we all go together? You know, let's let's be a team. And they had that famous slogan, you know, 40 for 60, you know, 40 men playing together for 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, one last thing about his style, his 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 actual game. 
did he have a big arm or was he throwing, you know, uh, slant patterns or was he, was he throwing the ball downfield? He was strictly a down the field guy, you know, I, he would even really, just gripping the, gripping the ball the way he did. Yeah. yeah Cause, uh, he had his favorite deep target was Gene Washington, who was another Michigan state alum. And, um, you know, John Henderson was the other wide out and, you know, Joe liked to, like I said before, he liked to push the envelope. He would drop back and he would go deep. You know, they they bombed Cleveland in the NFL championship game 27-7. Mm-hmm. And the Vikings' uh, first touchdown was uh, a long bomb to Gene Washington. I think it covered about 70 yards or so. Hmm. So Joe was always looking to attack defenses deep. You know, he, he would have fit in well with the AFL in that regard because he would have fit in with guys like Namath and Hadel and, some of the others, LaMonica, who, you know, were always trying to stretch the defense deep. And, you know, Cap certainly had that same mindset. And the other thing about Cap, too, in that NFL championship game against Cleveland, a lot of people probably forget this, but in the third quarter, he broke loose for a run. And it was just him and uh, Browns linebacker Jim Houston in the open field. Mm-hmm. And Houston was probably the best defender Cleveland had. He's a big, physical type of guy. And he and Cap met basically helmet to helmet and you know when it was over joe cap stood up and jim houston was you know face down on the ice uh knocked cold wow so, yeah so that says a lot about the rugged type of player that that joe cap was and you know the week before again it kind of gets lost in people's memory but that game the vikings played against the rams for the western conference championship was an absolute classic that was just a one of the greatest games i've ever seen to this day and it was uh you know joe cap leading the vikings to this you know stirring second half comeback they were down 17-7 at halftime and cap led them back and scored a scored the clinching touchdown on a rollout and he hurdled the ram defender to get into the end zone and it just kind of typified you know the kind of player joe cap was the fans must have loved him oh they did they carried him off the field on their shoulders they you know they loved joe cap and you know, his teammates loved him. It was just really a shame that he left the Vikings after the 69 season because, you know, yeah, I kind of yeah. think so let, let, let's, let's get there for a second. Yeah. He wins yeah. He wins the NFL championship against the Cleveland Browns. They go to the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. Unfortunately, they lose to the Chiefs. Who were a very good team. Yeah, yeah, yeah coached by Hank Stram, and they had right. Len Dawson at quarterback and all that. And a great, great defense that really is one of the best defenses in pro football history and doesn't really – you know, they kind of get lost in the shuffle there, but their defense has, you know, five Hall of Famers. And if Johnny Robinson makes it, which he probably will, they'll have six Hall of Famers, which wow. is by the Lombardi Packers for the most ever by a defense. I mean, it's more than the Steel Curtain or anyone else. Wow. Yeah. People, most people would never, never think that about, about the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, but Cap played, if I understand correctly, that entire third season without a contract and the Vikings did not resign him here. The guy Mm -hmm. is just this. He's a winner flat Mm -hmm. out. He's a winner. There's some guys whose ball just doesn't look pretty, but they get the job done and they help their team win. And that's what Joe cap did. So he winds up going in 1970 to the Boston Patriots, who are now the New England Patriots. Talk about that. Playing without a contract, 
winding up on the Patriots, and then he was gone. He was yep. he didn't even play for the Patriots for long, just one season. Tell right. us about that that time in Joe Cap's career, why he didn't have a contract with the Vikings, how he ended up in Boston, and why he only played there one year. It kind of goes back to the same situation he had when he, you know, first tried to break into the NFL and ended up going to the CFL. Is it was money. You know, Joe and the Vikings could not agree on you know, length of contract following the 69 season or, or the, the dollar amount, you know, Joe felt like he wasn't getting offered what he was worth. Um, you know, and I think he had a valid point. I mean, yeah. Was, you would think, you would think that Jim Finks who brought him there along with Bud Grant and saw what this guy could do would treat him just a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. And I think two things probably scared off the Vikings from, offering Joe the money and the length of contract that he wanted. Number one was his age. He was going to be 33 for the 70 season, which is old for a quarterback, you know, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. In, in that era, you know, prior to all the advances in uh, medical equipment and training and all that. Um, and the other thing was, I think that, uh, you know, the Vikings were very conservative and they didn't want to pay the kind of money that Joe wanted. I think Joe, you know, probably overestimated his value a little bit because, you know, like I said, the Vikings, uh, they did have a great defense. They did give him a lot of short fields to work with. Um, you know, and he took advantage of that. He was good enough to do that. But I think there was, I think there's fault on both sides. I, you know, I don't think it's right to blame either Joe or, or the Viking management entirely. I think they're both wrong. And I think the team suffered for it. You know, even though they made it back to the playoffs the following year with an identical 12 and two record, you know, they lost in the first round to a very beatable uh, 49ers team and they lost at home in mm. cold weather. It was very much Viking weather out in the Met, you know, with the snow on a field and the ice and everything and sub zero temperatures. That was, that's the kind of game you kind of figure if Joe cap had been there, the Vikings would have won. Right. And, um, you know, so he, he doesn't get the contract he wants with Minnesota, so he goes to to the Boston Patriots, who, you know, now it's no longer NFL AFL because it's 1970. It's the first year of the merger, so it's all NFL, but he's playing in the AFC with Boston, and you know, he j- it just didn't work out. He didn't have that same kind of magic that he had with Minnesota, and the Patriots were they were not good. They were not good, and they had didn't have you know any kind of the talent that the Vikings had. Plus, at that time, didn't the Patriots also draft? Wasn't that around the time where they drafted Jim Plunkett? Yeah, so Plunkett they had their eyes on Plunkett. Well, they, Plunkett would come in. Plunkett in seventy was still with Stanford because he beat Ohio State in the Rose Bowl that year in a huge upset. So he was coming in in seventy one. Um, but yeah, the seventy season was just a disaster for Cap. He didn't have the blocking. He didn't have the offensive talent around him. He didn't have, certainly didn't have the defensive talent. And you know, without Without that, he was kind of, you know, I don't want to say he was exposed, but it would have been very hard for any quarterback to succeed, you know, in that kind of a atmosphere. You know, if you, if you don't have the blocking up front, there really isn't much you can do as a quarterback. And Joe didn't have the offensive line uh, that he had in Minnesota with the Vikings. Well, my team's the New York Giants, and I'm struggling mm-hmm. with that right now with good old yeah. Eli not getting any protection whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, 
So he spends the one year with the Patriots. Did the Patriots cut him after that year? Did they let him go? Was he still not under a contract? What happened there? Because I think later on, didn't he win some sort of case against the NFL, even though I don't think it meant putting any money in his pocket, but it, it, it certainly set some sort of precedent in such cases. Yeah, he had a lawsuit against the NFL following that. Um, and like, you're right. I think he, he kind of won the battle, but lost the war. He didn't get the, the financial payout that he, he wanted, that he thought he deserved. Um, and I think the Patriots kind of saw him as a, you know, a bandaid, so to speak, uh, for the 70 season, you know, they were going to definitely draft a younger quarterback at 71. And that turned out to be Jim Plunkett. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you know, cap was, in 19, following the 69 season, Cap was one of the, you know, quote unquote, celebrities of sports and of pro football. And, you know, it was, it was kind of a PR move as well by Boston to bring him in. Mm -hmm. They didn't have great attendance and they figured, you know, having a charismatic leader like Joe Cap would, you know, put fannies in his seats, so to speak. And I'm sure it did for a few games anyway. He was... You know, his arrival was was pretty well celebrated in Boston, and uh, he's probably the most famous athlete there since, you know, Bobby Orr and Carl Yastrzemski. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it just didn't work out for him there. And then he did have the, the lawsuit that, you know, like I said, I think he won it technically, but he didn't get the uh, didn't get the money that he had hoped for. I don't know if he got any money from it. And yeah, my he, understanding is he didn't. Yeah. And then he dabbled in some acting. I know he was in the longest yard with Burt Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that yeah. in just one second. I got to ask one other question about this. After the 70s season, did he try to catch on with anybody else or was, was that it? I think that was it. You know, and I don't think he ever fully recovered from the beating he took in Super Bowl IV. Hmm. You know, he had to leave that game late in the fourth quarter with a separated shoulder following a huge hit from... Chiefs defensive end Aaron Brown, who had also, uh, interestingly, had knocked Daryl Monica out of the AFL championship hmm. game a week earlier. Uh, and that was the other thing about that Super Bowl. There was, a, unlike most Super Bowls, there was only one week off between the the, two, the NFL championship and it and, oh. and the Super Bowl. They Not a lot of time the to usual, recover. Yeah, they didn't have the two week preparation time. Man, with the Chiefs running such a complicated offense and defense that the Vikings had really hadn't seen much of, you know, a lot of people credit that to Kansas City's victory because the Vikings kind of looked befuddled that afternoon. Like they didn't really know what to expect from Kansas City. And, you know, with the Chiefs moving pocket and their stacked defense and all the other things that Hank Stram liked to do. And Vikings were a very basic bread and butter team. And, you know, not many, no team in the NFL really was as complex as Kansas City. Dallas was probably the closest, but, I don't think even they were as complex as Kansas City at that time. After Cap's playing days were over, as you just said, he found himself in Hollywood, the longest yard. He had appearances on such shows as The Six Million Dollar Man, Adam 12, Emergency, a couple of, couple of other movies as well. But I think his first love was football, and he went back to the game as a coach of Cal, and later mm -hmm. 
he found himself back in the CFL with the BC Lions as their general manager, I believe. And then he went to the Arena Football League and coached the Sacramento Attack. Have you had a chance, have you ever had a chance to 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 meet or speak with him and what his post-playing days have been like? I did have an opportunity to speak with him by phone uh, years ago. Um, this was when he was at Cal. And he's actually the coach at Cal, too, when they had that famous band game ah. against Stanford. Yeah. Against Stanford. Yeah, with the band running on the field at the end of the game and Cal scoring a touchdown to, to pull off the, a miracle victory. But I did have a chance to speak with, with Joe by phone. At that time, we talked about the uh, 69 season, you know, about the uh, the NFL playoffs, the victory of the Rams and the championship win over Cleveland. And, and of course, talked about the Super Bowl. That wasn't his favorite topic to speak of. Um, yeah, I'm sure. You know? <laughs> yeah, for good reason. But, um, you know, I think he's of the opinion, uh, like a lot of other people, that if if only things could have you know been worked out contract wise, that he would have re-signed with Minnesota and they would have won, you know, one, maybe two Super Bowls, you know, between 1970 and 72, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, I think his best shot would have been in 70, maybe 71 as well. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think looking back, he regretted not staying in Minnesota because he really was an icon there and, and still is, you know, for people who remember the Vikings, remember that those teams that he played on, you know, he was like uh, he was like a comet that kind of streaks across the sky. He was here and then gone. You yeah, know, he was only in the NFL for four years, three in Minnesota. Right. And right. and you know, I, you know, the name of the podcast is Sports Forgotten Heroes, and we don't normally talk about guys who had such short careers. But if you go and you include the CFL, his career was not short. He Mm -hmm. won a gray cup. He won an NFL championship and he played in a Super Bowl. Why is it, do you think that more people don't remember or know about Joe Cap? Is it strictly because his career was so short in the NFL? I think it's that, and I think it's also the you know the era in which he played. You know, it wasn't like now where you could watch any game anytime you wanted. You know, back then you were you could only watch what the what the networks gave you. You know, so you know unless the Vikings were you know in a playoff game or unless they were, you know, a game of the week kind of feature, you didn't see them. You know, you you just didn't see them mm-hmm. um, unless you were living in Minnesota. And even then, in that era, the games were blacked out, right? Because of the blackout rule. So unless you were at the stadium, at Met Stadium that day, and that wasn't a fun stadium to go to. No, not for no, football although, and not for baseball. I wish I had gone there because it looked like it was a. It was just so iconic. I think with right. the, you know, with the the old open air stadium and. Uh, you know, just one of those stadiums that I, was, I, I wish I could have been to. I, you know, I was only nine years old at that time. But, you know, if I lived in Minnesota, I would have loved to have seen a Vikings game at, at the old Met. Sure. I think that would have been a, a great time. Absolutely. Hey, let's turn our attention to your book, which will be coming out next year. Hell with the lid off inside the Steelers Raiders rivalry 
that changed pro football. You co-authored it with NFL historian Jim Campbell. Where did the idea come from and how fun was it to write? That was a lot of fun. Uh, Jim actually worked for the Steelers at that time. He was uh, in their front office. Mm-hmm. So he he has all these great stories to tell, all these inside stories that you know I've never been told before, at least not in print. And um you know, it's just it's just such an important piece of history. You know, everyone there have been books written about the Steelers and there have been books written about the Raiders, but there's never been a book that's been written about the just strictly about the rivalry between these two teams in that era. And I think for, you know, for a span of, you know, five or six years, that might have been the most intense rivalry yeah. in pro football history. I mean, the fact that it ended up in the Supreme Court to try to decide things because of the, the defamation character suit between Chuck Knoll and uh, uh, George Atkinson. I mean, it really, you know, transcended the game. It transcended the action on the field. You know, the the games were so violent and vicious between those two teams that they led to rules changes that have kind of, you know, led to the making of the modern NFL. So I think it was just an important part of history to to talk about and to to write about. And it was just, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, I was only a teenager during that time watching those games. But, you know, they they left an impression on me and, you know, almost everyone of that generation who would Mm -hmm. watch those games and. You know, it seemed like they met in the playoffs for five straight years from 72 through 76. And the AFC championship game, they met three straight years, mm-hmm. 74 through 76. And each of those games decided, decided the eventual Super Bowl champion. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, so many stories. And mm-hmm. I'm sure some that, as again, as you said, we've never heard. Mm-hmm. But let's ask you this. What was the most surprising or most revealing story about the rivalry you discovered and wrote about? What surprised you most? Um, these are so many. It's kind of hard to pinpoint one. Um, Is there a, just, Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it might be uh, the backstory of, you know, that whole Supreme Court situation where you know, Chuck Knoll, uh, it was following the, the, the two teams met in the season opener in 1976 in Oakland and, uh, George Atkinson clotheslined Lynn Swan, uh, on a play away from the ball. The pass wasn't even intended for Swan and Atkinson came up and clotheslined him, knocked Swan out of the game. And, um, so afterward, Chuck Knoll said that, Atkinson and, and the Raiders were part of a quote unquote criminal element <laughs> in the national football league and the Raiders. So Atkinson sued Noel for defamation of character. <laughs> and during the courtroom trials in the Supreme court, uh, Atkinson's defendant and the Raiders defendant showed films of Steelers like Joe green and Mel Blunt, you know, turning, opposing players on their helmets and everything else. And, you know, under oath, Noel had to admit that, yeah, you know, some of the, the uh, play of his players could also be deemed criminal, which of course, you know, as you might imagine, did not sit too well with the Steelers. And Mel Blunt went so far as to say that he would never play another down for Chuck Noel. Wow. After that. Now, of course, you know, they reconciled and 
you know, Blunt did spend the rest of his career in Pittsburgh, but it had really reached, reached a breaking point. Well, I, I, I hope to read that book when it comes out. Um, sounds like a great read. Um, sure, the stories, like I said, um, interesting. Hopefully some are funny, and I bet mm-hmm. you it's very captivating. Before I let you go, though, Joe Cap, always tough to speculate, but do you think that it might have been a good thing that he went to the CFL first or do you think he would have made it in the NFL had the Redskins brought him in when he was drafted? I think he was a good enough quarterback. I think he would have made it in the NFL. I think he would have had a uh, career there. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, you never know how things are going to work out. If he had gone to the Redskins, who were not, you know, a, a good team at that time, who knows what Joe Cap's fate is. You know, mm-hmm. he might have been like so many other Redskin quarterbacks or quarterbacks with lesser teams who – you know, they get injured because they don't have the protection or, you know, their careers kind of never really take off. I think Joe was a system quarterback who thrived in the Vikings uh, system. I think he was the perfect quarterback for the perfect time in Minnesota. He was Mm -hmm. just a great fit for that team. And uh, he was, you know, he was what really brought that team together. And he was the, the spark and the motivation they needed to, you know, make that leap from being a good team to being a great team, which they were in 69. They were a great team in 1969. And lastly, when we talk about Joe Cap, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, Ed, tell me about Joe Cap. Who was this guy? How should we describe or remember Joe Cap? I always think of Joe Cap. When I think of Joe Cap, I think of two words, charisma and winner. He had both in spades, and he was and he was a tough guy. I mean, let's face it. I mean, he, he has a scar on his chin from a barroom brawl where he got hit with a beer bottle. <laughs> I mean, it's, this guy was, you know, he was no holds barred, you know, on the football field and off. And, um, you know, he just had a style about him, a swagger, mm-hmm. the way he carried himself and, you know, the way he would attack defenders head on and, you know, there wasn't really anybody who's ever played the position kind of the way Joe Cap did. I mean, Bobby Lane, you know, now I'm going way back, but Bobby right. Lane did to a point. But Joe Cap was unique. He was very unique in the way he played his position. He played quarterback like a linebacker. Well, Ed, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I certainly hope you enjoyed our discussion. I did. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And uh, if we get a chance, we'll have you on again. That sounds great. I appreciate that. Earlier, we covered Cap's CFL career numbers. His totals in the NFL? He threw for 5,911 yards, 40 touchdowns, but a whopping 64 interceptions. On the ground, he rushed for 611 yards and five touchdowns. And of course, he won the NFL championship in 1969, but lost in the AFL-NFL championship game now known as the Super Bowl, to the Kansas City Chiefs. I'd like to thank Ed Groover once again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And next spring, don't forget to look for his book, Hell with the Lid Off, Inside the Steelers-Raiders Rivalry That Changed Pro Football. Also, check out SportsFH.com for more information on Joe Cap, including links to some of his highlights. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we welcome back Lee Elder, 
also a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association, for a look back at a truly great running back, a guy who was once the NFL's all-time leading rusher, but was ultimately overshadowed by the great Jim Brown. We're talking about Joe the Jet Perry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.